may not be familiar with the name nor the face of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, but he is the man who contributed more to the collapse of atheistic communism in the Soviet Union on the day after Christmas in 1991 than any other single individual. Now, at that time, his written views were considered to be subversive in Russia, so he was arrested. And he was imprisoned for eight years in the infamous Gulag concentration camp. He was forced to struggle through long days of backbreaking labor and malnutrition and sickness, sleeping every night on a mattress filled with rotting straw. And one day it became too much for Solzhenitsyn. He decided that he was ready to give up. So laying his shovel aside, he sat down in exhaustion and weakness and despair. He knew that at any moment a Russian guard would come around and order him back to work under the threat of a bludgeoning death with his own shovel. He had seen it happen to others. And as he sat there, head down, anticipating the end of his life, if he refused to obey the guard's order, he felt a presence. So he slowly lifted his eyes. And next to him sat an old man with a leathery, expressionless face, and leaning forward, the old man drug a stick through the dirt at Solzhenitsyn's feet, silently tracing the sign of the cross. And in that moment, his perspective was changed. Solzhenitsyn surrendered his life to Jesus Christ, and he would later reflect on those years of imprisonment to say to the astonishment of those who were around him, bless you, prison. <laughs> he realized that he was only one man against the oppressive and atheistic Russian empire, and yet one day, with the help of an old man, he was reminded that the hope of all mankind was represented in that simple cross and that through the power of the cross, Anything is possible. So he got back up on his feet again. He picked up his shovel. He went back to work, never imagining that his writings about truth and freedom would one day impact the whole world. You may not read it in the history books, but it was Solzhenitsyn's conversion as a result of that symbol of the cross being traced in the dirt at his feet that had a transformative impact on the whole world. Such is the power of the cross. Now, I know that every week I stand before an audience of some 3,700 folks who may from time to time feel a little bit like Alexander, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, weary, beaten up by life, even, even hopeless. Preacher Dwight L. Moody said, there is at least one broken heart in every pew. 
And it could be the loss of a loved one. It could be a chronic health issue. It could be a financial problem. It could be an unavailable husband. It could be an unresponsive wife. It could be a rebellious child. Probably every one of us could write down something. A personal regret or a deep hurt. But if you're distressed today, for the next few minutes, I want you to see the cross and be both consoled and also strengthened. It's incredible to me that the cross originally an emblem, as the old hymn writer has said, an emblem of suffering and shame has become the symbol of encouragement and endurance. And we've been looking at the cross of Christ from several different vantage points in this series of messages. We're seeing the cross through different eyes, through the eyes of the religious leaders, through the eyes of the soldiers, through the eyes of the disciples, and today we want to see it through the eyes of those who were the first believers. Now, you know they had to have heavy hearts, and I want us to try to think their thoughts I want us to try to feel their emotions this morning, but even more importantly, I want us to experience their elation and their joy when they discovered the significance and the meaning of the cross. And I would describe how the first believers saw the cross of Jesus using two words, and the first word is disillusionment. And you pick up on their disillusionment in the last chapter of the Gospel of Luke, and it's expressed by two believers who were walking that seven-mile trip from Jerusalem to Emmaus, Cleopas and a friend. And they had been in Jerusalem, and they had been eyewitnesses of the crucifixion. And Luke records a little of their conversation in verse 21 of Luke chapter 24. But we had hoped, they said, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Or as the message puts it, we had our hopes up that he was the one, the one about to deliver Israel. So when some of the believers actually saw Jesus on the cross, their initial reaction was not just grief, it was also disillusionment. They had convinced, been convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. And they had good reason to believe that he was the Savior of the world. After all, they'd seen his miracles from turning water into wine, the healing miracles, and then the raising of Lazarus from the dead. They'd been captivated by his teaching. They had heard him assert his deity. They had listened intently as the disciples told the story of the transfiguration, of his walking on the water, of his calming the storm. But their impressions of Jesus, though positive, led them to a false conclusion. First, believers expected the Messiah to be a political ruler who would overthrow their Roman oppressors and establish his reign over Israel. But they completely overlooked the Old Testament prophecies that clearly stated that Messiah would be a suffering Savior. And that's why Jesus corrected the two disillusioned believers on the road to Emmaus. In verse 25, Jesus said to them, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things? and enter into his glory, no matter how hard Jesus tried to communicate that, the first believers just didn't seem to get it. 
So their expectations were not met by reality. Now, when that happens, it leads to disillusionment, no matter what it is. If you have expectations here and reality comes in here, disillusionment results. Even though Jesus said in Matthew 26, said it in exactly these words, I am going to Jerusalem to be crucified. I don't know how they could have misunderstood that. And speaking of expectations not being met by reality, <laughs> I remember a few years ago uh, when we lived in Joplin, Missouri, Kayleen and I took a few days off in Branson. My folks had accumulated some coupons for discounted tickets, and they passed them along to us. One was for a theater that featured an Elvis impersonator. I was up for that. I thought it would be fun. I kind of grew up with the music of Elvis the pelvis. Well, we arrived early that afternoon, and we got some great seats in the middle, about six rows from the front. But by the time the show started, there were only two other couples in the whole theater. That's it. Count them. Six of us. I leaned over to my wife and said, quick, let's get our money back and get out of here. But she's much more of a feeler. She's more sensitive. So she said, we can't do that. We would embarrass ourselves and we would hurt his feelings. So... Two hours later, folks, it was awkward to say the least, Elvis came out into the crowd <laughs> and wrapped silk scarves around the necks and serenaded the same three women a half a dozen times. Have you ever been in a situation when it's inappropriate to laugh and as a result of that, it's just hysterical. <laughs> and there were a limited number of men in the audience to bring up on the stage to perform with him. Three of us, to be exact. Yeah. And over the road trucker who had been to the Golden Corral way too many times. <laughs> a guy that looked like a refugee from Duck Dynasty and a very disillusioned college president. Needless to say, my expectations and reality, they did not match up that day. But in contrast, the first believers, they should not have been disillusioned. Jesus was crystal clear. In Luke 9, 44, he said, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. So when Jesus was arrested late one night, and then by 9 o'clock the next morning he was nailed to a cross, they were not just shocked. They were completely disillusioned. They thought he was the Messiah who would deliver Israel. And I think sometimes believers today are disillusioned by what it means to belong to Jesus, to come under His Lordship. They have the expectation that when you become a Christ follower, you are in store for a life of blessing and no trials at all. Years ago, there was an old country song that had the lyrics, 
I don't care if it rains or freezes as long as I have my plastic Jesus up on the old dashboard. Some people had the idea that putting a plastic statue on the dash of your car will keep you from having an accident. Then I can remember years ago talking to a man who was baptized into Christ and dropped out of the church within the first year as a Christian. When I inquired of him, he said he lost his job shortly after he became a Christian. He said, Christianity didn't work for me. I tried to do the right thing, and this is what happens. Listen, friends, if you see Jesus as a personal defender who will protect you from abandonment or betrayal or injustice, look at the cross. He was forsaken. He was friendless. He was unjustly condemned. He died alone. If you see Jesus as a benefactor who will make you wealthy and successful, look at the cross. He died penniless and despised. If you think that Jesus is a counselor who will solve all your problems and bring immediate harmony to your family. Think again. His mother Mary was there at the cross, but his father Joseph was not there. Now, he may have died prematurely, but even Jesus' own brothers did not believe in him until after the resurrection. If you see Jesus as the great physician who will, who will heal your disease or relieve you of all pain, look at the cross. Jesus suffered physically, dying at the age of 33. Scripture says he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Don't set yourself up for disillusionment by thinking that if you pray as a Christian, the free throw should always go in and that you'll always have a perfect report card or that the girl will like you as much as you like her or the house will sell, or that the pregnancy test will finally be positive, or whatever. There should be no sense of entitlement in us as believers in Jesus. Now, there will be times when the Lord will be a defender. There will be times when He will be a benefactor. There will be times when He will be a valued counselor, a wonderful counselor. There will be times when He is a great physician. But we don't hold on to expectations that may be nothing more than our own self-serving desires. Instead, see God's grace and favor in the no's as well as in the yeses of your life. That's what it means to truly trust Him no matter what. If you do trust Him completely, you won't, be, you won't be disillusioned. Ted Turner's younger sister, Mary Jane, died from complications related to lupus. He prayed for her one hour a day for weeks, prayed that she might live. She did not live. And when she didn't, Ted Turner turned his back on God from that day on. Now he calls Christians losers, and he is outspokenly angry at God whom he claims does not exist. And the arrogance and bitterness at the root of his disillusionment has contaminated his inner life. It has robbed him of abundant life, and it will keep him from experiencing eternal life unless he changes his mind. Well, closely related to their disillusionment is the believer's discouragement. 
These early believers had to have been devastated by the evil they witnessed. The apparent triumph of Jesus' enemies, it had to be totally demoralizing. The religious leaders, so envious of Jesus' popularity with the people, appear to have had the last word. After all, Jesus is dead, His voice is silenced, and those soldiers, so impersonal, so brutal, had executed the Son of God. That's why in despair, Mary stood outside His tomb weeping. It's why the two believers on the road to Emmaus, verse 17, chapter 24, they stood still, their faces downcast. They couldn't even put one foot after the other after what they had seen in Jerusalem as they traveled to Emmaus. They stood still, their faces downward, and their discouragement is revealed in the words of Jesus when He first appeared to His followers after the resurrection. Jesus said in Luke 24, 38, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your minds? It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. These first believers felt powerless, helpless against the evil in this world, and the discouragement had to run deep in them from the Garden of Gethsemane all the way to the Garden Tomb. And I think it's pretty easy for us 21st century believers to be discouraged by the power of evil in our world today. The opposition to Jesus and the Christian faith is so militant today. It is so pervasive today. And the cross can seem like a pretty weak answer to what is presently going on. Think about this. Here's what's going on. Every second, 1,001. $3,075 is spent on pornography every second, 1,001. 28,258 Internet users are viewing pornography every second, 1,001. 372 people are entering adult terms into computer search engines. Every 39 minutes, a new pornographic video is being created in the United States alone. And you're going to find this hard to believe. But the pornography industry revenues are larger than the revenues of the top technology companies combined. Microsoft, Google, Amazon, eBay, Yahoo, Apple, Netflix, and Earthlink. And it is having a devastating impact on the minds and lives of young people and couples and families. Our nation's top-tier lawmakers endorse same-sex marriage. They veto legislation that would ban partial birth abortions. And yet they continue to be elected. And I don't know what your reaction is, but my reaction is distress over the character of the American people. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is a radical feminist, self-proclaimed, to the extent that she wants to see an all-female Supreme Court. It doesn't matter about qualifications. She wants to see an all-female Supreme Court. She is a die-hard pro-abortionist, again, by her own profession. She was nominated by the president back in 1993. She was unanimously approved by the Senate. Ninety-seven. To zero. Jack Kevorkian helped Roosevelt Dawson, a 
21-year-old paralytic kill himself. The death was ruled a homicide because Dawson could not operate the suicide machine by himself, but no charges were ever, ever filed. Dr. Death was never charged with the homicide. Today, professional football players assault their girlfriends and their wives, and they continue to be celebrated and generously compensated. Today, you can be criminally prosecuted for saying the N-word, but the F-word is perfectly acceptable in the media and in everyday speech. Today, it's a crime to say anything disparaging about Islam, but it's open season on all things Christian. And those of us who revere the name of the Lord, for us it can be discouraging. And a few miss Led believers want to fight back like the early believers did during the Crusades. That's not the answer. Listen, we're still trying to live that one down. The answer to evil in this world is not to bomb abortion clinics or to ambush abortionists or to shout and demonstrate against sodomy at military funerals. It's not to write vindictive letters to the editor or hateful blogs or Facebook comments or tweets. No, listen. Listen to the words of 2 Corinthians 10.3. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, our weapons... And he refers to what those weapons are in verse 1. You know what our weapons are in spiritual warfare? Meekness and gentleness. Our weapons have divine power to demolish strongholds and arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And here's how we do it. As Christians, individually, we sit up on the edge of our bed every morning and we take time to pray. Lord, today, help me take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. To the early believers, the Roman Empire looked so powerful. But friends, we know it's true. The Roman Empire collapsed and the cross still stands. And Alexander Solzhenitsyn, communism to him in the Soviet Union, looked so powerful, but communism fell, and the cross still stands, and the Berlin Wall came down, and the cross still stands. In the book Amistad, African slaves instigate a mutiny on the ship, bringing them to America, but they're overtaken at sea. And they're brought to the States to stand trial for murder. None of them speak English, so they have no idea what's happening. But during the trial, one of the slaves had seen a picture in an English Bible of Jesus on the cross, and he began to pass it among the others. They thought that was the way that they were going to be executed. Here's the irony. Judge Coglin who would determine their fate, went into a church one morning, knelt before the cross of Jesus, asking God for wisdom. 
And even though President Martin Van Buren wanted Judge Coghlan to rule against the slaves, he set them free. The cross was more powerful than the influence of the President of the United States. The cross was more powerful than the racism in the community. The cross is a powerful symbol of grace and freedom. And that's why the Apostle Paul went into the very spiritually dark and carnal city of Corinth. And he went to preach and establish the church. Here's what he said in a letter back to them in 1 Corinthians 2.2, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's how Paul took on the rampant materialism and paganism and secularism that was ingrained in the city of Corinth. And the message of the cross had a transformational effect. Listen, friends, the cross will prevail. We should never lose heart. We should not be discouraged. And there was one event that changed the cross from the symbol of discouragement to one of hope and victory. And here it is, the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. The early believers came away from Golgotha disillusioned and discouraged, filled with despair. But Jesus appeared to more than 500 of them at the same time, and they were filled with inexpressible joy. He was alive. He had conquered sin and death and the grave. Romans 1.14, Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead. And that's why... We do not have any crucifixes in this building or on this building. The only crosses are mounted on the front and back, and they are empty crosses because Jesus lives. His tomb has been vacated. And friends, we need your help to share this message of hope with our community in just three weeks in the Ford Center. Something just as simple and easy as taking and displaying a yard sign something just as simple as putting one of our invitation cards in the hands of someone else can result in a life change. There are literally scores of people in our church family today who first came into our faith community at an Easter service at Robert Stadium or the Ford Center. Friends, the cross was not an accident, and it was not even a momentary victory for the enemies of Christ. The last words of Jesus on the cross were... Telestai, it is finished, which is, I have conquered. John the Baptist had introduced Jesus by saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist understood the purpose of the cross, that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness for sins, and Jesus shed his blood. What he did on the cross was not incidental. It was intentional. Jesus said, No, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. His blood was not spilled. It was shed. From the crown of thorns that pierced his brow to the soldiers who punched his face and pulled out his beard to the scourge that lashed his back and arms and chest to the skinning of his elbows and knees as he fell under the weight of the cross to the rough-hewn beams that rubbed his shoulders rock to the spear that was thrust into his side. He went quietly like a lamb 
before its shears is silent, he did not open his mouth. And here's why. 1 Peter 1.18 For you know it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb, without blemish or defect, chosen before the creation of the world. So those first believers had to deal with disillusionment and discouragement. And we see the cross through their eyes this morning, and we are able to avoid disillusionment and avoid discouragement because we understand what the resurrection did to change the cross into a symbol of victory and joy. Will you stand with me for prayer? Father, I know that in this worship assembly this morning, there is someone who has never responded to your love, your grace in Jesus. For them, the cross has had very little or no meaning. But this morning, they've seen it. They've seen it clearly. What it means that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. Pray, Father, that there would be decisions made, that hearts would be changed, minds would be changed, so that we all might take our place with the billions who have chosen to see the cross through the eyes of believers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.